Welcome to Uplifting Women podcast. This podcast is sponsored by upliftingwomen.net, as well as Holly Tesca Coaching and Consulting and Regent Leadership Group. Join our co-hosts, Holly Tesca and Kristen Strunk, thought partners in the world of leadership, equality, and personal and professional development. Listen as they bring stories of inspirational women and their allies who are working every day for authentic leadership, equality, and inclusion in business, education, and community. These are the stories of the people whose mission it is to ensure others are seen, heard, and respected. They've overcome challenges in the workplace and the world or supported other women in doing so. Holly and Kristen are committed to uplifting women's voices, sharing inspiration, advice, and maybe even a few laughs from women and their allies about the work they are doing to promote inclusion and equality in our world. They believe that by sharing stories of challenge and triumph, we can all make the world a better place as we inspire others to step fully into their personal leadership space. We are so happy you have joined us today for our conversation. Welcome everyone to Uplifting Women podcast. This is Holly Tesca and I've got my co-host here, Kristen Strunk. And today we are welcoming a good friend of mine, Jordan Goldrich. Jordan and I actually first met at a conference for the Association for Corporate Executive Coaches. And I quickly realized how much experience and wisdom and just what a good person he is. So Jordan is the founder and CEO of Workplace Warrior, Inc., Jordan partners with leaders and executives with an uncommon desire for results who take charge, lead their teams, and accomplish the mission. Jordan believes they are critical for success in our volatile, complex, and uncertain times. Sometimes they're experienced as abrasive and occasionally get called names like bully. Jordan's mission is to help them be completely authentic, fulfill their mission, achieve respect, and positive relationships while taking performance to an even higher level. Jordan comes to us as one of those people. He once lost a job because he was experienced as disrespectful. He made the commitment to communicate respectfully, even when his brain was telling him they don't deserve it. And he has helped many others to do the same. Jordan is a chief operations officer, master corporate executive coach, and a licensed social worker. He is also the author of the Amazon bestseller, Workplace Warrior, People Skills for the No Bullshit Executive, and the producer and host of the podcast, Workplace Warrior, Drive Results Without Damaging Relationships. Jordan, I am so happy to have you here. We've been talking about having this conversation for a while. One of my favorites, certainly one of yours, because you wrote a book about it, Workplace Warriors. And I want to start off with the men that are bullies in the workplace, but we're definitely going to get to the women that are bullies in the workplace. And most importantly, how do we deal with those kinds of people? I am really um, pleased to be here and everything you said is correct. We've really become good friends over the years. Let's talk about bullies in the workplace. You have, you admittedly was of that ilk, let's say, yourself. You got some tough feedback, especially after they walked you out the door uh, (laughs) in one organization. You had your own epiphany about it, obviously, at that point. 
And hopefully not everybody's got to lose a job in order to correct that sort of behavior, but it has tentacles in many different directions. Number one, I really don't think that bullies like to be bullies. They just don't know how else to get things done. That's my perception of it. So you've got that dynamic going on. You also have the people that are experiencing on the receiving end of that kind of behavior. So that's not a pleasant thing. And then it's also the damage it does to the organization in terms of trying to achieve goals in a hostile environment. I know you've done lots of research on this, but why don't you just lay the groundwork for our our listeners? Great. Thank you. So let me start by saying that I was born in a loud New York family that was loud by even New York standards. And on top of that, I grew up in a city housing project that was built for returning World War II veterans. So working class people, and they're very direct. And on top of that, my family was even more direct. And this has been an issue throughout my whole life. People who knew me in 1998 when I got fired think that I'm a whole different person now. And people who know me now think I could be a little bit more diplomatic. It really is a journey. But I do want to say that what happened was I was not profane. I wasn't a bully. Uh, I didn't, you know, curse at people and that sort of thing. But I, I definitely had my New York and my New York family attitude. And one day I'm in my office and I get called down to my boss's office and I walk in and the senior vice president of the human resources is sitting there and his office was three and a half hours away. So being a fast study, I realized this is not good. And they proceeded to walk me out for mismanaging my budget. Then I think it was somewhere around four or five days later, I don't remember exactly, but I bumped into the woman who had been my consultant from the finance company on my budget. We bumped into each other and she came over and she said to me, Jordan, I owe you an apology. And I said, why? And she said, you know how for the last three or four months, you've been asking me that you've been saying there's something wrong with your overhead and I've been looking at it at you. I don't know what you're talking about. And she said, and I said, yes. And she said, and you know how you asked me for a breakdown of your overhead at least twice and I never gave it to you. And I said, yes. And she said, well, I knew exactly what was wrong with your overhead, but our boss told me that I would lose my job if I told you. So at that moment, I knew I had been set up mm-hmm. and outside in my car in 90 degree weather, I realized that uh, I was a little bit, I was a little in shock, but not totally surprised because I knew I had been set up, but I realized I had a great opportunity to feel victimized for the next 10 years. And I hate feeling victimized. So I decided to do what it is at the time that I would work on with my counseling clients. And let me just mention this. I've decided to let my LCSW go. So I am no longer a licensed clinical social worker, but I am a former licensed clinical social worker. And I realized that what I needed to do was to take responsibility for what had happened. What did I control? And that would be a learning experience rather than a victimized experience. And so I realized that I knew she thought I wanted, I knew she wanted me to be more deferent. And I had seen her do stuff like this before, and I didn't respect her. Now, again, I wasn't profane, but I would challenge her in meetings or that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So I realized, Jordan, you should have kept your mouth shut. 
And on top of that, then I thought about it and I realized that I had previous mentors and a therapist or two tell me that I need to be more diplomatic and tactful. And I had dismissed it for a variety of reasons. And let me go into this just a little bit, because I think it's important for your audience to hear the kinds of reasons that people who are experienced as abrasive or bullies don't change when they hear it. One reason was I was working my tail off and I come from a culture that was loud and direct. And so I really had to uh, develop new neural pathways to change. And, that, and I just didn't feel like at the time that I had the energy to do that. I was working 60, 70, 80 hour weeks. Secondly, I thought that the push for me to be polite was, uh, today I would call it politically correct bull. And by the way, most of the abrasive people in businesses think that it is politically correct bull that they're being asked to be more. There were a couple of other reasons, but th those are the two big ones, the culture and the background. And the, actually there's three. So there's culture and background, there's how stressed you are, and there's, should I even have to do this? Why can't you handle me? So Jordan, what's really interesting to me that they didn't fire you because they didn't like your style. I don't even know how much coaching or feedback you had gotten from that boss about your style, maybe a lot, maybe none. The fact that they felt that they had to get you because of the number situation that was being withheld from you, that to me... That's just so underhanded. She was very passive aggressive and untruthful. Mm -hmm. and, and by the way, both men and women are passive aggressive and untruthful. And we live in a time where that seems to be much more acceptable than being abrasive, direct, and annoying. But I, yeah. I, I think part of it was that she was angry at me for a lot of stuff. <laughs> so. And that just happened to bubble to the surface at the right, right. moment. And that's how that played out. I think you're right too, as to the reasons people don't address behavior issues, whether it's being abrasive or it, it could be anything. It takes time to change. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes concentration because those neural pathways, as you described, they need to be recrafted in a new way. And that's not, it's not like you wake up one morning and say, oh, I'm going to be different. Right. It's really. And, and by the way, 20 years later, I still mess it up sometimes. Oh, you wouldn't be human if you didn't. That's exactly. So Jordan, I'm interested to know what were those first steps in your journey? So as you said, it is a journey. You had a realization. So what were the first few things that you decided to do or to take on for yourself? So that's a great question. Thank you, Kristen. So I find in working with abrasive executives or working with anybody about anything, that the first step is to decide that you want to make the change. And for me, the choice was either make a commitment to make the change. I like to talk about it is I, I recognize that I was being smacked over the head with a two by four. And that I either could start listening to what was being said about me, or I could take a victim position and go, oh, it wasn't my fault. And I, I made the commitment that regardless of, by the way, now I talk about it. I talk about cultivating compassion for people. My brain is telling me don't deserve it. 
polite people don't say anything or more passive aggressive people don't say anything and do something else behind their back, whatever. And I guess there's something in between about just being a good human being and not confronting. But that was my first step was making the commitment. And by the way, that took care of a lot of it. It took care of about 40 to 50% of it. And then the rest of it has been reprogramming my neural pathways. And what were the processes that you've used for that? Tools, books, coaching yourself? What were the things that were successful for you? I have training in both cognitive behavioral therapy as well as psychodynamic. And I I knew psychodynamic says that you have to heal the wounds. So I'd spent a lot of time in therapy. I've been in analysis five years, three and a, three times a week. So I think the reason I didn't take the victim position was because of understanding that I had been ignoring this stuff and being willing to be aware of it. The next step was to change the script. So what I started to do was I started to, I had a couple of people in my life who I trust and were, were close. And I started to do more pre-conversation practices And then I um, also started to, after uh, a meeting or a conversation where I knew I was at a line, I started writing it down and practicing other alternative things I could have said, also figuring out what it was that triggered me. Mm. So in that sense, we talk about coaching as if it's not counseling, but it's really this gray area. In order to reprogram your brain, you have to figure out what triggered it, what is the threat, and what is it that got you to get angry or short or frustrated. And then you have to figure out, is there another way I could look at that? And then you have to figure out, okay, what else could I have said? And I'm at a point now where there are times that people say stuff to me that used to trigger me. And it's after the conversation, it's not only were you not triggered, you didn't even have to think about it. And so it's gotten a lot easier. And at the same time, like I said, I still have those same, that same other set of neural pathways that periodically get triggered and so stuff comes out of my mouth that I just can't believe. It's interesting because as we're going through the pandemic, as we're going through this great resignation, as we're calling it, we're hearing a lot of talk around empathy and listening and leader behavior. And I'm curious about what your thoughts are on how leaders can build their own awareness, maybe without being hit over the head with a two by four. Hopefully after they listen to this podcast, they'll realize that they need to do something. And I find that abrasive leaders need to be smacked over the head has been my experience. I certainly need to be smacked over the head before I change. And you could ask Holly, she smacked me over the head a couple of times along the way, as have some of the other people we know. There are other people who figure it out easier. I'm not sure how they do that, but they do. When you think about it and the leaders that you're coaching and the the stress that even the last two years to three years have really put on 
leaders and organizations, if you lay that on top of someone who may have those natural abrasive or assertive dominating tendencies, how are you seeing this extra stress play out? How is this contributing to maybe their inability to lead a team effectively? Certainly there's a lot more turnover. And I'm not sure, you know, I think the old research indicated that people don't leave companies, they leave um, leaders. And I think that's still true, but I think it's changed. I think, I think there's a different mindset right now among people who work, they have more leverage than they had in the past. So there's more, they're more likely to get up and leave. And And what is the role of empathy and emotional intelligence in your coaching? Is that something that you are working with leaders on developing and trying to build those new neural pathways, as you mentioned? Absolutely. So I I like to, I I took a program called Cult, compassion cultivation. I took it with a friend of mine and I I expected I'm a therapist. I was a therapist and I'm an executive coach and I've been through all this stuff. I expected to learn some techniques and I learned something that really made it easier for me, which was the definition of compassion. So a lot of people, when they hear the word compassion today, they think that it means sympathy. Now, sympathy is, oh, I understand. Let me put my arms around you. Compassion is not sympathy. Compassion is the recognition that someone else is suffering or in pain, coupled with the urge to do something to uh, alleviate that suffering if you can. And I think it's very important to understand that it doesn't mean letting them off the hook. It doesn't mean ignoring it. It doesn't mean tolerating it. In fact, I was tolerated. And had I had gotten a much straighter, by the way, Jordan, you're going to get fired if you keep doing this, that would have gotten me, to, that would have gotten my attention. So typically leaders, I think HR people have this issue is that they have these valuable executives who are contributing a ton. And on the one hand, they're causing risk for the company and people to leave, and that's costly, but also threat of lawsuits. And on the other hand, they don't want to threaten and lose a valued resource. So how do you do it? What do you do? And I do think it takes some direct conversation. How you do that, part of the difficulty for HR people is they may have a conversation in their head. I can't believe this. Whatever word you want to fill in there. And so it's really hard to be compassionate for somebody that you're feeling judgmental. Again, it's cultivating compassion for people that your brain is telling you don't deserve it. You have to be able to, number one, uh, not think of yourself as a target, as a victim. You are a target. You are getting behavior shot at you. And one of the things we've lost these days is the idea that the difference between victim and target, the idea that if somebody says something that is abrasive or difficult, or even disrespectful and demeaning, that has to make somebody feel bad. And so I think one of the secrets of success as a human being, but also certainly in business is you got to be able to handle it when people direct negative stuff at you. You got to be able to continue to feel good about yourself. And the paradox about that is you have to recognize that even they're being obnoxious and saying disrespectful stuff that they could be right. 
So that's, it, that's really hard stuff to manage and, and to be a professional in that kind of a environment. And one of the things that I've started doing, I actually do it in coaching. So one of the things I tell new clients is that somewhere along the line when we're coaching, we're going to be talking about a problem. We're going to be brainstorming and thinking out loud. And one of the terms for that is thought partner. And I come from this loud New York family. And what I figured out is that sometimes when I'm brainstorming, I sound like I'm telling people what to do. Let me assure you, I will not tell you what to do because I don't know what you should do. I can share perspectives. And I fairly early on say, my job is to serve you. And if at any point you feel like I'm pushing you in a way that doesn't work, please let me know. Now, what I find is that gives them permission. And they start telling me about themselves and all of their faults pretty quickly. Now, when a leader does that, oh my gosh, they do it publicly and with other people. It creates a, creates a much more of a coaching, coaching culture and a right. culture where people feel psychologically safe. And especially if the leader is giving permission to people, if you're feeling like I'm being disrespectful to you, give me the time out. Doesn't mean I'm going to agree with you. Doesn't mean I'm going to change but I will not punish you for giving me that timeout signal. And, and it makes it possible to create the conversation that needs to happen so that people feel psychologically safe. None of these things sound like they're very difficult to do, but in reality, they are difficult. They are difficult. Yes, so they are. <laughs> so I don't want people to think, oh, I can just do this and it's going to change things. It takes a lot of practice. It takes a lot of reflection on what kind of reactions you get when you do make some kind of change. Yep. It, it's, it's a journey. There's no question about that. Absolutely no question. And as a leader, I think it's important to have that consistency and be able to share with your group, with your team, with your peers. I'm trying something new. I think that this is important. If you have in the past injured credibility or not created that trust, that psychological safety, it will take time for people yes. to trust you. It will take time. That very first week, you're not going to get a lot of timeout signals because right. people aren't going to trust that they can really do that. And what I've seen is that then leaders yes. very shortly after that and say, they're not going to tell me anything anyway, so I might as well just not do it. They have to be committed to the journey. It's not a short-term fix or a short-term solution. Well, and the other thing that's so important to remember is if people don't like you for the way you are, they figure out workarounds. We mm -hmm. all figure out a workaround. How am I going to tolerate Jordan? And once you get comfortable in that workaround, and now you start changing something on that dynamic, holy crap, now I've got to figure it out all over again. Beyond that, so when I work with executives who believe that it's a bunch of political correct bull, that they should have to be more polite and people should be able to handle it. One of the key issues is that everybody in your organization knows stuff you don't know. And even if they should be telling you, even if they were upright, strong human beings who had the guts to look you in the eye and say you're wrong and deal with your reaction. The reality is that you're not going to hear stuff and that's going to make you fail. 
or at least it's going to make you a lot less successful. So to the degree that the executive wants to be a good leader and wants to be effective, it's not just about being polite and not annoying people. It is also about getting the data that you need in order to be effective. And one of the things I had a coach back when I was the chief operations officer. And one of the things he said to me is, I, I, I get it, Jordan. You're not going to say the, ask all the questions and do all the stuff I want you to do, but there's one thing you're going to do. And I said, what's that? And he said, before you tell anybody what to do, they get to tell you why it won't work. And he said, you're going to tell the garbage man to pick up the garbage differently. You ask the garbage man, what am I missing? Or why won't this work? If you're going to tell the receptionist to answer the phone differently, you ask the receptionist, why won't this work? And if you don't do that, two things are going to happen. And I said, what's that? He said, well, the first one is I'm going to quit. And then he said, the and I said, so what's the second? He said, you're going to get your butt kicked. <laughs> and it was sort of like the first time I heard him. You have to talk to loud people like me that way, that direct, then uh, that's the message for HR folks is that if you're being too polite, they won't hear you. And, and I'm not suggesting that you get nasty with them, but they need to hear the Center for Creative Leadership has a model situation behavior impact. In this situation, you said this, the, the result was the person came and complained to the legal department about you. The danger is we're going to have lawsuits. <laughs> mm-hmm. And by the way, if you don't clean that up, it's going to affect your, your future. You have to be able to give them that information and, and stick with it even when they you know, throw a temper tantrum afterwards. It's really critical. So Jordan, most of the um, executives you work with, I'm assuming are male. Is that true? Mostly. Okay. I, I, by the way, I do work with female executives a lot, oh, I'm but sure it you usually do. isn't around abrasive behavior. Okay, so is there anything from your experience, bullies are bullies. Is there anything different between men and women bullies? Women have the additional problem of being judged as a bully for the same behavior that is accepted from men. Mm. And my experience is, and again, I really haven't studied this. This is, mm -hmm. you're getting my impression. The women in my family were really loud, as were the men. Mm -hmm. And I have been around very direct, very loud women. And it, it doesn't seem to me that they're any different than I am, other than they have different experiences in their mm -hmm. life and they have a, a different gender identification, perhaps. And, but I think there are a lot of similarities, but women do have, there's the cultural issue that women were expected to be more subservient. Mm -hmm. And however, what I find is that the techniques that I've used pretty much work the same for men and women. I think where women go astray and think that they have to be bullies is that's the way the guys play mm. and either you're with them or you're not. And one of the things that I'm very passionate about is helping women to realize that you can bring your authentic self to the workplace and not pretend to be somebody else that you're not just to be able to fit in. And sometimes I think that's where that comes from. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So one of the techniques that I use, I actually took from my experience as a family therapist. 
And there's a model of communication in family therapy that's different than the models of communication that are taught in the business world, in the communication world. It says that there's two aspects to communication. One aspect is content, whatever we're talking about. The other aspect is relationship. So the person who's talking is defining a relationship with the person who's listening. The person who's listening defines a relationship back. There's only three possibilities. The first is one down, one up. So I can approach you. One of the nice things that leaders do that are effective is to approach their people from the one down position. They might say, well, I know you know a lot about this. Can you brief me on something? They can also approach from the one up. That's not okay. Don't do that. Whatever. The second one is equal. We're both human beings. And third one is one up, one down. And what makes leadership so difficult is that from paragraph to paragraph, the position that is effective to take will change. So just to give you an example, one of the things that I recommend in terms of managing up to a difficult manager is to frame the frame the what you're going to say from the uh, I'm in service to you position or the one down, but your voice needs to be equal. So I could say, Holly, you've asked me to do this and I've been thinking about it and I wouldn't be doing my job serving you if I didn't let you know I have another perspective. Do you want to hear it? Now, if you say no, I'm leaving. You may be back in my office within an hour or a day and say to me, okay, in which case I'm going to say, look, I'm really not trying to tick you off. I'm really trying to be helpful. And then you're going to say to me, will you just tell me so I don't push that any further than that. But, but, and then you can give them the issue. Right. This is what you're saying. This is the reactions that people are having. This is the impulse. I'm thinking that this could lead you down a bad path. You might want to try this. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, that also works in teams. I've been in teams where there's groupthink and, or I'm part of the groupthink. <laughs> and so everybody's going in a certain direction and there's one or two people who think this ain't going to work. And so one of the things to say is I wouldn't be doing my job as a member of a team if I didn't let you all know that I have a different perspective. And I, and I think this could cause us some difficulty. Do you want to hear it? Right. And there's something about that pause that do you want to hear it? And the refusal to go on unless at least they a little, unless there's a crack in the window, that's very powerful. In some ways, the one down position is more powerful than the one up position. I really like that approach, Darden, and I think I've used it actually. And it, what strikes me is when you're the CEO of an organization, and that's a lot where you and I hang out very top of (laughs) these organizations, it's sometimes really tough to speak truth to power and boy, they need to hear it. And if there's any advice that I would give a CEO, it's be open to hearing the truth. Mm-hmm. Be open to hearing the truth and make it okay for people to speak truth to you. One of the things we always like to wrap up with is if you're going to leave our listeners with a piece of advice or two, what would that be? I think I just want to say, as we've been talking, what really has struck me again is how difficult it is to be a human being, number one, and that there are conflicting messages in the workplace and in leadership. One message is you should drive results. 
The other message is serve the people who are working for you. And what makes it difficult is both are true. And if you are only serving people and never confronting, never directing, you're probably not going to be successful. And if you are only directing and not listening, there's lots of setup for, for being unsuccessful. So that's the final thought that I have. Thank you. Words of wisdom, for sure. Jordan, thank you for sharing everything that you've shared. I want to remind our listeners that you can check out Jordan further at workplacewarriorinc.com. You can email him at jordan at jordangoldrich.com. And you can also check out his podcast. It's called Workplace Warrior, Drive Results Without Damaging Relationship, which is fantastic. And thank you again, Jordan. It's been a really great conversation. It's been a lot of fun today. Always. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you so much for listening in on this latest episode of Uplifting Women podcast. Holly and Kristen appreciate your dedication to uplifting women and look forward to you joining them again soon. This podcast is sponsored by upliftingwomen.net, as well as Holly Tesca Coaching and Consulting and Regent Leadership Group. Please visit your favorite platform where you found this podcast to leave a review. If you are an uplifting woman or a man who champions women's success with a story to share, Kristen and Holly would love to talk to you. Please visit upliftingwomen.net and leave us a message.